Welcome to tonight's event, How to Thrive in a Digital Age, which is brought to you by the Center for Public Christianity. Tonight's event is in partnership with Holy Trinity Anglican and Christ the King Presbyterian, Vintage Church, and Providence Church. My name, as you could probably tell from that video, is Josh Shatro. I'm the director of the center, and I'm the, also the lead teacher for the center's uh, really a flagship fellowship program, New City Fellows. Before we jump into the main event, I want to tell you a little bit about the Fellows Program and how you can learn more. Uh, New City Fellows is an eight-month fellowship program that equips emerging leaders to integrate their faith and work to impact workplaces and our city, Raleigh, with the gospel. This last year has just been crazy. We've been through such turbulent times, and I can't think of a better way to invest and thinking about how the gospel can actually change things for the good, for the common good of our city. Uh, plus, uh, in the fellows program, you get to do this thinking in a community with some pretty special people and interact with speakers such as the Andy Crouches of the world who we're going to hear from in just a minute. And so if you're interested, you can go to our website, centerforpublicchristianity.org to sign up for our uh, info sessions coming up. We have one March 11th, which is a virtual session, or you can attend our in-person info session on March 18th. Again, go to our website, centerforpublicchristianity.org to find out more details. Now that that advertisement's over, I can get down to tonight's business. Tonight, we have two sessions. The first one starting, well, now is uh, we get to hear from Andy Crouch. And afterwards, we're going to have a conversation and we'll be taking some of your questions. You can just use the question and answer feature on Zoom. It should be at the bottom of your screen. And I encourage you to, to send those in. Even as Andy is speaking in a few minutes, uh, it will not distract him. So please fire away with your questions, uh, even as we're, as we're going. Our second session, just to go ahead and give you guys a heads up, if you don't know, is uh, we're going to have Andy and Amy Crouch. Amy Crouch is Andy's daughter and the co-author of My Tech Wise Life. And so they'll be joining us, as well as some representatives from, from our four sponsored churches, and they'll be on a panel with them. Uh, for some of that time. I hope that many of you will stay on Zoom for the second hour, especially if you have kids that are still at home, uh, especially if you're planning on having kids. Uh, I don't think you're going to want to miss that, and I don't think you're going to want to miss hearing from Amy in that second hour. Now to introduce Andy Crouch to, to all of you, though I know for many of you, you probably don't need much of an introduction. Andy is a is Partner for Theology and Culture at Praxis, an organization that works as a creative engine for redemptive entrepreneurship. His books include My Tech Wise Life with, that I just mentioned with, with Amy, My Tech Wise Family, which we'll, we'll probably hear some more about tonight, Strong and Weak, which I think is my favorite Andy Crouch book, uh, playing God and Culture Making. Uh, for more than 10 years, he was the editor and producer at Christianity Today, including uh, 2012 through 2016, Andy was the executive editor there at Christianity Today. His work and writing has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Time. And for 10 years, he was a campus minister with University Christian Fellowship at Harvard University. Andy, 
we use your work in our fellows program and uh, so many of us have been, have long been admirers of your writing. So it's my delight to welcome you at least virtually to the center tonight. And we're so grateful that you're gonna spend some time with us. Thank you so much, Josh. And thank you everyone for being part of this. And I'm so looking forward to the conversation. Um, Josh, I'll jump into a brief presentation. Uh, I have a 20 minute timer running here. Uh, so at the end of 20 minutes, I'm gonna stop talking. You and I can start talking and then we can involve our, our audience as well. Uh, I'm so grateful that you all are part of this tonight. Having written a book called The TechWise Family, a lot of people assume, um, even perhaps you assume when you're tuning in that they know what I'm going to talk about. Uh, everyone thinks it's about screen time limits for kids. How do you set the right screen time limits for your kids? And in the second hour, Amy, my daughter and I, um, who's much the better uh, part of this conversation, uh, we'll, we'll talk about some of those topics. But I thought it would be helpful uh, in this hour that we have together actually to look at bigger issues, um, bigger themes uh, than just how parents might address the latest wave of devices to sweep through our homes. Um, and I want to explore bigger questions that apply to all of us, no matter what stage we are in life, no matter whether we have currently are raising children or, or whatever, because I actually think uh, something very unsettling is happening in all of our worlds not just in our families, but in our churches, in our schools, and in our nations, as we reckon with what so far technology has wrought um, in our world and in us. And I actually think there are some things that I'm not especially hopeful about, to be totally candid, in our world and our culture. This is actually something I'm hopeful about, because I actually think we are rethinking all of this quite actively right now. And we are asking, are the dreams that we dreamed when we, when we brought these devices into our lives, into our homes, into our schools, into our workplaces, into our nation, are they working out? Is there something better? Have we taken a wrong turn? Could we turn around? And I, I'm not sure what, what all, if I think the answer to all those questions are yes, but yes, I think we can and must turn around. There is something better. We did make some mistakes and it's not too late. So let me uh, just share with you two dreams that I think have animated a lot of what technology has become for us, even though it did not have to be this way, even though we didn't have to use technology to these ends. These are the dreams that have animated so much of what we've built and incorporated into daily life. And I'm gonna call them uh, easy everywhere and superpowers. So easy everywhere and superpowers are, I think, the two dreams that we often have in mind, uh, not least when we purchase a new piece of technology for ourselves. By easy everywhere, I mean um, very broadly expanding the domain of our lives that does not require effort, that doesn't require attention, that doesn't require much engagement, and that kind of works just on our behalf without us having to work for it. I see this as the great watershed of the last 200 years, though I think it really didn't come, uh, come on board full speed until about 100 years ago. In many ways, I see this as the work of a single generation. My parents are in their 80s now. And when they were born, there was very little easy everywhere in their world. Uh, and today they're both still living. And in the world that they and their grandchildren, like my daughter now know, there's a great deal of easy everywhere. I'm thinking about the transition from the fireplace to the furnace, 
from a fire that you had to go out to find the wood, perhaps chop the wood, stack the wood, wait for the wood to dry, bring the wood indoors, make the fire, build the fire, cover the fire at night so that in the morning you'd still have fire. All the attention, all the work, all the physical effort uh, that went into the fireplace has now been replaced by, uh, at least in, here in Philadelphia, uh, I think even in North Carolina, you need these things, furnaces, boilers, uh, that thing that sits in probably a very neglected remote corner of your home. And without you hardly ever thinking about it, except when you pay the gas bill or the oil bill, um, just takes care of heating your home for you. It's gotten so much easier to control your climate. Uh, of course, not just heating, but also cooling, um, something our grandparents could barely imagine that's now absolutely routine and makes many living in many parts of the world possible. Easy everywhere. I'm thinking about the transition from the stove or the range uh, to the microwave, the stove that required you to cook, the microwave that requires you to push a button. Maybe you took something out of the freezer, another easy everywhere device, easy access to cold, no need for ice boxes that your grandparents might have had. Um, the microwave, just press a button and moments later you've got a meal. Maybe not the most appetizing meal, but a quite adequate meal with very little effort. The transition from the landline to the cell phone. How do you get telephony? How do you get uh, far away speech, which is li literally what telephony means? Uh, having, I, I remember, I'm 53 years old, when I grew up with phones, you had to go to the phone. Now the phone comes to you, now the phone service comes to you. The transition from going on the internet, a phrase that our children and grandchildren will not understand at all because the internet is just around us all the time, easily accessible all the time, but you used to have to actually dial up, make a choice, enter into that world, now that world is literally kind of wafting through the air and through my own body in the form of uh, radio frequencies. Uh, it's conveying me to you with very little effort. I didn't have to go on the internet to be with you tonight. All of this is part, part of what a philosopher who's a big influence on me, Albert Borgman calls the device paradigm. And it's basically the delicious experience of having things work without you having to work. So easy everywhere, I think is often why we buy things. It's why we buy the new version of things. It's why it's often what we mean by an upgrade that something's got easier or it's gotten everywhere, -er, more ubiquitous, more available, more ready for us to tap whenever we want. And then there's superpowers and superpowers overlap, but I think have a different focus because their focus, whereas easy everywhere is kind of, the focus is on disengagement, on relaxation. I can just say I want it to be 72 degrees. I don't have to do any work for it to be 72 degrees. Superpowers really involve what you might call easy efficacy. Efficacy, that sense that I can make a difference or I can get something done. Effortless power. I first heard this word in my adult life. I mean, I heard it when I read comics as a kid, uh, but I first heard it in my adult life in Silicon Valley from a very, very gifted entrepreneur named Sonny Vu. I was writing a story about Christians who were working in Silicon Valley and, and Sonny had started a series of tech companies and the one he was working on at the moment was called Misfit. He later sold it to um, a big, big company. Um, but at the time he was building these beautiful little wearables uh, like wristwatch style wearables that would track basically a fitness tracker with some really wonderful functionality and great design. And I asked him, you know, what do you think is the underlying thing you're building? I mean, I know you're building a fitness tracker, but what's the 
what's the value proposition of this? And Sonny, who's a very thoughtful guy about this, said to me, human beings want superpowers. We want to extend our capabilities in the world. We want to be, be able to become something different, do something different, know something different beyond just our natural capabilities. And I think what we're doing in tech here in Silicon Valley is, is giving people superpowers. I think he's quite right. This word has become almost a cliche in technology marketing now. Um, there's a education platform that says it'll give teachers superpowers. There's a marketing platform that will give marketers superpowers. There's a coding academy that says coding gives anyone who learns to code superpowers. It's sort of a go-to word used by the people trying to describe what Silicon Valley will give you. And I think the significance of this is that it's not just about kind of leaning back and relaxing while the devices work for you. It's the idea that if I plug myself into the right system, I will feel a surge of ability and ability to make a difference in the world that I don't feel by myself. In some ways, some of these superpowers that technology gives us start to approach what we imagine to be the, what we sometimes call the classical attributes of God. Omnipresence, being able to be anywhere that you might want to project your presence. Suppose that I'm in the suburbs of Philadelphia tonight, but I want to connect with friends in Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill. Uh, I can simulate and in some ways efficaciously achieve a kind of presence with you through this superpower of Zoom and all the stack that it's built on. Omnipotence, uh, knowing, uh, being able to do things at a distance, being able to turn on my car when I'm miles away from it. Um, probably more important <laughs> versions of that. I have a car that suddenly allows me to do that for the first time. And it feels like a superpower when I touch that button and I know that it's warming up a few blocks away while I'm finishing dinner. And then omniscience, the ability to know uh, from anywhere, whatever we might seek to know. And we imagine that, the, that God, if we believe in God, uh, has all these qualities without trying, without effort. He just has them. And maybe if we have technology, we can just have them as well. Now, I think what's very interesting is that in, these, in this hundred years of the accelerating, accelerating advance of what we call technology, we really have acquired both of these qualities to an amazing extent. And I, I think the best way to really um, grasp that is to imagine describing to your own grandparents or great-grandparents the life that is now completely routine in your world. Tonight, um, though I'm, it's not doing it right now because I wanted quiet here in my living room, but tonight my robot that's in my home uh, will do my dishes for me. Uh, almost all the dishes will be done by our dishwashing robot. Now, that's not as exciting as it might sound because it's just a dishwasher, but it's, after all, a highly autonomous uh, feedback loop-based system that takes care of a routine task. It, if I, I mean, it is a robot. It's just that when robots actually arrive in the world, we rarely call them robots anymore. We give them more prosaic names. And imagine telling my great-grandmother, who probably spent uh, an hour or more every day doing the dishes, that I would have a, a very, very intelligent machine in my home that does all that. Um, we do have an amazing amount of easy everywhere. We do have amazing amounts of efficacy. So here's the question. Why aren't we happier? <laughs> Why aren't we happier? Why are we, it seems, more anxious than uh, 
our great our grandparents were. There's quite a bit of evidence that suggests that this is the case. Why is uh, depression and a sense of lassitude and disappointment with the world the defining malady of our time? Why do we feel so powerless when we have such amazing superpowers? Why do we feel so constrained, so unable to affect the world, even as we're able to do things routinely that our ancestors would have considered the stuff of absolute fantasy and magic? I think it's because these two dreams were misplaced. I think easy everywhere doesn't make you that happy for reasons I'll explain. And superpowers are not that powerful. So I think we dreamed of the wrong things, basically. And I think it's because easy everywhere actually doesn't do anything to increase your satisfaction with life. And superpowers actually strangely do very little to increase your ability to make a difference in the world as it actually is, rather than the world that we dreamed it might be. Why doesn't easy everywhere, after an initial burst of delight when you first install a dishwasher or first activate your new Wi-Fi 6 network or whatever. Why does, why does it, the happiness effect quickly trail off and why do we find ourselves living with a great deal of our lives with a sense of disenchantment rather than enchantment? I think it's because of a very thing, very simple to say, easy does not form us. Easy is not formative. Easy doesn't change us. Easy doesn't transform us. And what we actually need to become deeply satisfied human beings is to be changed. We, we need to become different kinds of people. There's two ways to think about this. One is in the realm of skills. Uh, the skill is an ability, it's an acquired ability to use your heart, soul, mind, strength capacities, let's say in a way that unlocks possibility in the world that you can't just do without trying. Skills require effort. They require sequenced difficulty. Uh, I play the piano. It's one of the things I love to do. And you can't, uh, you can't have a beginner play Beethoven. A beginner has to play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star and then has to play scales and then has to play arpeggios. Skills require a kind of a long development of a, a stacked set of abilities that require a lot of difficult, painstaking, sometimes quite tedious work. And it's actually when we've acquired skill in the world that we start to develop the capacity for real lasting satisfaction. Uh, I, I did practice the piano. My mom made me for a while, then I got kind of motivated. And, uh, and after 40 years of developing skill, I can now sit down and play Beethoven. And there's a satisfaction and a delight and a durable delight in playing Beethoven or Bach or Richard Smallwood or uh, any, uh, any of the greats of Black Gospel, which is the other musical tradition that I apprenticed in. Um, there's a delight in that that's different from pressing, pressing play uh, on Spotify or you know pulling up a video on YouTube and having the music in the background. And I would suggest that the real lasting satisfactions in our life are more based on skills than they are uh, just on the ability to have beautiful things happen around us. Somehow there's something about sitting down in a chair that you made that is satisfying in a way that just ordering a chair from Ikea, even an Ikea chair that you managed to assemble yourself is just not the same. And then I think there's something deeper than skill. And uh, the classical word for this that the Christian tradition picked up on is the word virtue. 
that we actually need to become a different kind of people to live ultimately happy lives in the world. And two things that I write about in particular in my book, The TechWise Family are wisdom and courage. We need to be people who have deep knowledge of ourselves, others, and God, if there is a God. Uh, that's wisdom, deep knowledge of who we are, who other people are, what this world ultimately is about. And then courage, the ability to act against resistance and in the face of fear on, on the basis of what we have come to believe, ideally through wisdom, is true. And uh, when you think about, I mean, how much wisdom do you have? <laughs> how much courage do you feel like you have? I'm sure you, I, I feel not nearly enough, maybe a little more than I had when I was younger. How many, how much of my wisdom and courage were formed by experiences that were easy? Zero to a first approximation, zero. Every real bit of wisdom I have of what I know about the world to be true about the world, others, God, myself, every bit of courage I have came at moments of great difficulty, not when things got easier. So easy everywhere is actually leading us away from the formation of skills that give lasting joy and the formation of virtue that a long tradition of people who've thought carefully about this think is the actually the only way to be sustainably happy. Easy everywhere doesn't form us, doesn't shape us in the kind of people we're meant to be. And then superpowers are not that powerful. Effortlessness is strangely inert. So I, 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 I have to admit, I haven't thought this through as much as I've thought through the other one. So I'm going to go through it quickly. I also, my timer is counting down alarmingly quickly. I want to get to the conversation. But let me just focus on the effortless efficacy that I have thanks to Zoom right now. I am in a meaningful way with you, but also in a very thin way with you. Um, there's not much I can actually accomplish in this hour that we have together through this little glowing rectangle on which are many other rectangles like your email and your Facebook messenger and whatever, you know, whatever distractions you. I'm so conscious of how little efficacy I have in spite of the fact that I'm projecting my image, my voice, perhaps my ideas to you. And if this hour that we have is to matter, it will actually be because of a great deal of effort undertaken by others. So Josh and Daniel, who you haven't met, but who's behind the scenes and setting up all the tech for this, uh, all the people involved in the Center for Public Christianity in Raleigh, the board members, the volunteers, the other staff, those of you who are active in their programs, you've put in real effort, real presence with one another to advance this work. And my little contribution skimming into the, on the surface of that only takes root and has, makes a difference if it's built on deep reserves of real, real difficulty, real strenuous, creative work. I'm not saying everybody's broken a sweat, but some people probably have to make this possible. And of course, I wouldn't actually have anything worth sharing with you if I hadn't gone through the work of, of writing a book, The TechWise Family, writing with my daughter another book, My TechWise Life, and I'm actually working on a third book that is a huge amount of effort and actually not going very well. It's really hard. And it's only because I've done those hard things that don't feel like superpowers at all that I have something that I can summarize and project over this little screen and hope that it might make a difference. So let me just uh, end with uh, just looking at my notes here. Just 
two, two very quick thoughts uh, about what technology is good for. So t- technology is not, doesn't actually help us when it adds leisure to our lives, nor does it help actually, I think very much when it adds superpowers or what we dream of as superpowers to our lives. I wanna say, I think technology is very good for two things. Really good for safety. It's really good for safety, for preventing meaningless interruption of meaningful human lives due to accident and disease. I am so unbelievably grateful that my mother got her second COVID-19 vaccine this afternoon. That's technology, that's high technology. It was very easy for her, barely a pinch, maybe a few side effects, and she's now protected from a disease that could easily, meaninglessly cut short her life. Technology is fantastic for this. It's not very good for underlying health. Uh, So it's good for medical remedy. It's not so good for underlying health. We're living through, even as we live through COVID-19, a massive infectious epidemic, we are all living through in the West, the largest first in a way, non-infectious pandemic in human history. It's not caused by a virus or a bacteria. Um, It's called metabolic syndrome. It's uh, the combination of high blood pressure, high cholesterol or high risk of heart disease um, and high blood blood sugar, diabetes, uh, coronary disease. And metabolic syndrome, uh, associated, of course, with overweight and with lack of exercise, is, is the product of the life of easy everywhere, the life of superpowers, the life that doesn't allow us to exercise our bodies in the, in the way that I think we were designed to. And 500,000 people have died in the last year from COVID, uh, but 655,000 people will die this year just from heart disease, not leaving, leaving aside diabetes and other uh, associated things from metabolic syndrome. So technology is good for safety, for prevention, for cure, but it's not actually good even for fundamental uh, health of the body. And it's good for productivity. Safety's, or technology, I think is actually just fine at work. I don't really have hardly any concerns about technology in the workplace per se, except when we need to do formative, creative things at work. Uh, but in terms of distribution, in terms of scale, in terms of uh, connecting value uh, from one place to another, which un- unlocks possibilities for human beings and human economies, it's good. So Amy and I wrote a book we'll talk about in the next hour, My TechWise Life. It's a great book. I'm so glad technology makes it very easy to distribute it, to make it possible for you to read it, make it possible for people in Europe to read it. Um, it's just the technology did nothing to help us write it. Technology couldn't help us create it. And technology certainly didn't make my daughter or me the kind of people who could create it. So great for distribution, great for productivity, but not great for becoming the kind of people who have something worth producing. So we're going to be least concerned about technology in the least formative places. The hospital is not meant to make you into a better person. It's just meant to rescue you from something acute that you're suffering. And we want lots of technology there. But in the gym, that's uh, meant to make you a different kind of human being with a different kind of strength, stay away from the exercise machines, go for the free weights, go for the uh, complex uh, movements. And where are the most formative environments in our lives? Where are the places where we're most deeply meant to be formed, not just in skill or even in just sheer strength, but in real virtue? I would say they're home, school, and church, above, above all, if you're a person of faith. And it's in those places that I think uh, we have to be really careful. And we have to be asked in this place, in the place where I'm meant to become a different kind of person, do I want things to be easy or do I want to be formed? 
And that's the question that I think we have to answer to put technology in its proper place um, in all of our lives. So thank you, uh, Josh. I took a few more minutes than I was supposed to, but I'll stop talking one way now and really grateful we get to talk and hear from others as we go. Yeah, that was, that, was, uh, that was great. We're not docking you for, for going three minutes over. <laughs> Uh, but but I am I have my technology right here that tells me keeps me accountable. <laughs> so I just as 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 so I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna talk to Andy a little bit here and ask him some questions and uh, give you some softballs. But as you as you're as you're tuning in from home, uh, use that use that uh, question function at the bottom of your screen, the Q and A function to send us in questions, and we'll. We will uh, try to get as many of those to Andy as we can and, and get you answers. Uh, Andy, so I know we're going to talk about family in the second hour and some of the things you've done, but we've got some folks on here who might not be joining us for that one. So I want to ask the real practical question, yeah, yeah. which is, so what, what, is that, what does that look like for the college student joining or for the 30-year-old the couple? You know what? What does that look like? Give some practical kind yeah. of takes on this. I know your both books are super practical on this and in a very thoughtful and engaging way, but get, give them a little taste of some of the practices you see that are important here. Yeah, totally. So basically, uh, in your most formative environments, and I would say at the most formative moments of your day and of your life, you want to minimize easy everywhere uh, and maximize kind of full engagement with the world. So I think of this in terms of space and time. So space-wise, um, what we did in our family, and we had a, uh, the house I'm in right now, the house where our kids grew up, it's not a big house. It's kind of a small, uh, single kind of box, um, open floor here on the first floor. Uh, we moved all the devices, all the things that operate by themselves, all the things that provide us any kind of easy everywhere, as much as we could to the edges of the house and as much as possible out of this first floor where we mostly live. So the TV is in the basement. Uh, there, is, there are speakers behind me. So there is some music device uh, available on this first floor. But if you walk in, I wish I could take you on tour, right around the corner from where I'm sitting, in the center of the first floor is a grand piano. Now you're gonna think this is not very practical because not everybody has or wants a grand piano in their living room. But the point is not the, the instrument, that was our family's choice. The point is put something at the center of the place that you live that invites you to um, act with skill and virtue, you might say, to develop skill, to be fully engaged rather than just pressing a button and having things happen. Um, our kitchen matters a lot to us. We don't use the microwave very much. We cook a meal every night. Um, so reshape space to, uh, to put in the center the things that actually fully engage you as a human being. Mm -hmm. And then those devices that are sometimes certainly have fun to have around and sometimes necessary, keep those at the edges. Um, if you're in, in a single room, in a dorm room, um, have to get a little more creative. But, and Amy will be talking about this in the second hour, what she does, uh, we, we have a practice in our family of uh, no phones in bedrooms. Um, and also this is, that gets also into the time side of things. I really, I think my life based on clear empirical study, 
<laughs> is so much better when my phone goes to bed long before I do and I get up long before my phone does. In other words, I have these periods of time at the end of the day and the beginning of the day that are free, really free of almost all devices. Uh, so we enforce that in our home by just putting our phones downstairs away from our bedrooms. I just literally never have my phone in my bedroom. Um, if you're in a single room, I suggest putting it on the other side of the room, away, out of reach of your bed, end your day reading, journaling, praying, meditating, begin your day in a different way than picking up the phone. It'll wait. <laughs> um, and what I've done for three years now, it is one of the most transformative things I, it ever occurred to me to do is when I get up in the morning, I come downstairs and the first thing I do is make tea. And I used to pick up my phone while I was making tea and just scroll. You, you know exactly, because I bet almost all of you, this is the first thing you do this morning, pick up your phone, scroll. And it occurred to me one day, there's gotta be a better way to start the day. Um, so I decided I would not pick up my phone until I had been outside. Mm -hmm. So for three years now, every morning with very few exceptions, I wake up, I make my tea, which is my way of saying the day's beginning and it's not gonna be terrible. Uh, and I carry my tea out our front door and just stand outdoors, no matter what the weather is. Even when it's raining, I stand out there for at least a moment. And this has been ridiculously revolutionary in my mental, emotional, and physical and spiritual life, I would say. And that gets into the other uh, thing. Sorry, I know I'm going a little long, Josh, but um, think about rearranging the space around you to, to put devices at the edge and kind of creating and engaging with the world at the center. And then think about a rhythm of use and non-use. And, and I think of this in terms of the biblical idea of Sabbath, or as the Jewish people say, Shabbat, which is uh, above all one day a week, where you step away from anything that works on its own. Uh, the, the Jewish practice is you don't do work on the Sabbath. I think the extension of that for our technological time is minimize the things that work for you on the Sabbath and actually re-engage the world, not in doing the work that gives you daily significance, pay and status, but in kind of being fully present in the world without the layer of devices. And I try to do that an hour a day as well in the middle of the day. Uh, so I just get a break. And I've found that if I build in this rhythm of use and non-use, I discover a lot about how dependent or even borderline addicted I am on these things. And I also actually am much more free in how I use them uh, when I do have them in my hand and when I do pick them up. Mm. Is that helpful? I know that was good. a lot. Maybe. I, I was reading your book um, and my, my, my seven-year-old has just started learning to play piano. And so- Ooh. I was reading your book and I said, I told my wife, I said, maybe we should can get a piano and put it in the center of our house. And Tracy's answer was like, he's seven. <laughs> this is premature. <laughs> he's a little better. And you won't be able to handle that. And I said, yeah. So we have a keyboard right behind me. I'm in the homeschool room. We have a keyboard yeah. with ear, with ear the earphones. So, the questions but, are rolling in now. Can I, can I push you on that just for a moment? No. I'm not trying to get you into a fight with, with your wife. Two things. First of all, as good as a keyboard is for learning, an old banged up upright will be so much more engaging for his heart, soul, mind, and strength because the analog instrument, speaking of someone who did study piano seriously, there's something to the, the, the analog instrument that develops skill in a way that no keyboard does. I hate to tell you. <laughs> and see, this is the thing. 
for us to live this lower device way, there, there are inconveniences. There's a reason our grandparents were like, bring on the washing machine, bring, you know, and, and it's, it's, yes, of course, we don't have to listen to that awful seven-year-old banging and mistakes and all that, but you will learn things about your son and where he is musically and how he's developing. If you can hear it, if it's in the center that you can't learn any other way. And yes, it's excruciating. Welcome to parenthood. <laughs> so I'm not, I mean, you know, there's a, a million things that you can focus on as parents, but, but I will say the most developmental things are the things that happen in the middle, the things that happen analog and the things where everybody is kind of present for the difficulty of it. And it makes it easier for kids to endure the difficulty if their parents are enduring it with them and, and they practice longer, they practice better. Just so you know. <laughs> Give me a tough sell, Andy. Let me, let's get to the <laughs> Let's move along. <laughs> okay, here we go. Uh, many young people today seem more interested in activism than in public service. Is this connected in some way to the <sighs> ideal of effortless Superpowers. Power? How should we think about activism and efficacy and how we work for societal change? And this is right, wow. at, this is right at the core of what we're doing uh, you know, some of the discussions at the center that we have. I think that's, again? Did you get no, the- no, no. It's a very profound question. So I want to say first that, um, you know, there, there are things done under the banner, let's say of activism that are actually very important efforts for social change. But I will tell you, I am, uh, I'm congenitally suspicious of any ism because we usually use that little suffix ism for things that are, um, well, there's a couple of different ways to think about it, but, but things that, uh, that take something out of its context and raise it to a kind of a level of, I might even say idolatry. That is something that becomes kind of central. So I, I believe capital is a really good thing. That is the, the acquiring and making productive assets, but capitalism, is a whole system built only around uh, returns to capital, which is more complex. I believe in human beings sharing things in common, but communism that puts everything into a centralized kind of repository of goods is more complicated. And by the same token, I think it's interesting this word, if you think about the difference between activism and action, activism actually I think holds out the promise of more efficacy but I wonder if it's, it's actually less effective than if we asked, what are the actions, or as, you're, as the questioner asks, what is the service uh, to the public, the serving, the servanthood that's needed to actually bring about change? And especially when this gets refracted through media, which, which, uh, which feel like they amplify us so much, but they also really diminish us in other ways. I completely think this is a quest for superpowers. It's the quest to find that lever that if I can push the right button with just the right words or phrase or meme or whatever, that I can shift a massive social reality when in fact what might be needed is much closer to the ground, is much more risky for me, implicates me much more in relationships with other people. I, I think it's a very, very astute observation that much of what passes for activism is all ism and no action. <laughs> it's all uh, superpower activation and no real 
hard, patient investment in building the conditions for change. So we could talk a lot more about it, but I, I think there's really something deep behind that. Yeah, I, would, I was thinking the other thing tied to that is the kind of uh, the the kind of identity crisis we're having, and how that I mean, is that connected to the media, the social media, particularly, and so activism becomes a way to identify um, huh. yes. yourself yeah. on the side of uh, of the good guys. Absolutely. And I think identity is one of those things that's meant to be formed um, in relationship with other, with other people through, through difficulty. It's really the identity and virtue are, are not, can't be disentangled, but who we become as others engage with us and see us. And, and when we project ourselves under the screen of media, it gets so much thinner and our identity becomes much more unstable when other people only know us through, th through this screen, but it's much easier uh, and feels much more efficacious. Uh, but real identity is found in very, very thick relationships of uh, family and community uh, that media cannot uh, adequately substitute for. Though media does give you identity superpowers, mm -hmm. but you don't, you don't want superpowers. Uh, here's a question, and it, it, it's, it's a theme that's really been, uh, we've had a lot this year, especially through a pandemic. And so I know this is, this is kind of a tricky one, but it's any thoughts of the, for the isolated and the lonely? I hate relying on tech for human connection. <laughs> yes. Too much of this season in our lives, pandemic, et cetera, has made it even harder to engage in real fellowship and connection. Yes. So I'm, I'm thinking particularly we have, you know, um, work with a lot of singles and um, they feel even more isolated right now. So it's been horrible. So it's been horrible. It's awful. The one tiny silver lining is I think in some ways it's actually easier for me to make the case today than it was a year ago, that technology, like the direction we're going of virtualizing everything of putting everything on screens is not satisfying because we've all tasted how, how limiting it is. And especially if you have relatively few like uh, physical relationships, if you live alone or whatever, as so many people do. So, the way to think about technology in this time, first of all, I, I think uh, the best comparison I've come up with is the bomb shelters in London during the blitz of World War II. <laughs> uh, in those bomb shelters, actually beautiful things happened. Uh, people remembered their times in the bomb shelters in some ways, sometimes quite positively. Um, you know, th there was a kind of camaraderie there. People made the most of it. No one at the end of the war uh, no matter how nostalgic they were, thought, let's keep living in bomb shelters. <laughs> mm -hmm. So what we've learned in this year is this screen is not enough. It's a, it's a useful adjunct. It it's, has an ancillary role to play, but we are made for other people in three dimensions in real time. So the one thing I wish, I, I think our our public health authorities were doing the best they could uh, most, most of the time. But I so wish that there had been more emphasis on, on basically the idea of pods of, of no, no one, no one had to go through the last year without human contact. You can form a group of people with appropriate precautions because households were doing this, right? I had, we had four people in our home for much of the, much of the year and, and that was considered just fine. 
but but nobody kind of thought to explicitly say if you live alone you need to find three or four other people uh, whether they live in a household or three other people living in individual units and you should be together you are not made to live uh, without human contact and the technology to the extent that it's stepped in and made it possible for grandparents to see their grandchildren. It's, it's like the bomb shelters, thank goodness for it, but um, not what we were made for. Yeah, yeah. Uh, here's, a, here's a question. It seems that many applications do not encourage, discourage, question mark, development of wisdom and courage. How do, <laughs> how do we manage these? And are there some applications that do encourage virtue? Uh, yeah. Why, why why do there seem to be so many anti-virtue machines and applications? <laughs> wow, what are, Can we redeem this? I mean, is there is yeah, yeah. what technology um uh, what what technology actually requires? I, I guess you would say, Andy, that the ones that require skill, you know, that exactly. So I yeah, I mean I think of uh a technology which isn't as good, but I did. We didn't buy it, but the soccer ball that's actually a soccer ball versus that you, I don't know if you've seen that Andy. Oh, I haven't. That you can actually do this training, soccer training inside with a ball, but it comes up on the screen. Oh, interesting. Right, right. Um, right. Versus, you know, with your fingers. There's right, exactly. Versus FIFA football or something. Like yeah, that. yeah. I mean, it, yeah. are there applications, are there applications out there? Can we, can we point to some or can you think of some? For sure. So, uh, I think actually a lot of what's, um, so, it, you know, it's interesting when you think about a furnace, there's not much you can do with the furnace. Like you're going to not going to make it in something that develops a whole lot of skill, unless you become an HVAC technician, in which case it becomes your area of skill. Um, but our computer technologies are quite pliable and quite adaptable and, and they're also hackable. So you can use them for things they weren't intended for even. So they, most of the things we do through our screens exist on a continuum from the device, which would be like the furnace, the record player, the microwave that just totally does it for you. And a word that I like to use to, to uh, contrast is what we sometimes call instruments. So instruments are, if you think about scientific instruments uh, or medical instruments or many musical instruments, they're actually pretty high tech. They're not they're not necessarily low tech. Even my piano, my grand piano, it's a it's about 150 year old technology, but there's a lot of science and metallurgy and all this stuff that goes into building it. It's not a simple thing, but it's an instrument which means it doesn't play itself. It develops me as I play it. I have to develop skill to play it. And, and it does that in multiple dimensions of being human. I think of the four basic dimensions of being human as heart, soul, mind, and strength, emotion and will, um, depth of personhood, that soul, mind, cognitive ability, and then strength, your body. So a, the, a technology is gonna be better and better the more of those four that it uses. So does it, so can you, um, for example, uh, can you walk while talking to someone rather than sitting still? Now, for various reasons, we're not doing that right now. <laughs> uh, but if, if I just had a one-on-one -on -one conversation, in fact, you and I had a one-on-one -on -one conversation a few weeks ago to prepare for this. We were on the phone and while I, I was in one room, uh, uh, but I was actually walking while we talked um, intentionally because if I add movement to a conversation, it actually gets better in my experience. So I can take this thing called the phone um, and, and add a bodily component and it gets more 
personal, you could say. It gets more invested. Um, so I would say the apps that are best for us are basically the ones that require the most skill to use. Um, so I'd much rather you have GarageBand on your computer than Spotify on your computer, honestly. Um, or at least I'd rather you spent more time in GarageBand than Spotify. Um, I could probably add, well, I, I think Facebook was better than MySpace because Facebook um, involved real world friendships for the most part, at least initially. It, and it, it had the face, it had the, that person that, that we knew and were friends with. Now, Facebook also made a bunch of things easy and gave people superpowers that has not worked out well at all. But it was still better than MySpace was, I think, for that purpose. Um, but a lot of what we have to do is actually hack uh, so I do not, I'm the only social media I'm really active on. I am on Instagram, but kind of minimally. Uh, I am on Twitter pretty actively and I hack it. Um, I, I don't use it the way it's designed. Um, I, I redesign it uh, so that I'm getting experiences that develop me, that develop wisdom. I follow people who consistently tweet with wisdom. Um, and, and I try to use it in such a way that's more of an instrument than a, than a superpower or a device. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a good word because I think a lot of people are on Twitter complain about it and we sometimes forget that we are in control of our account. So don't follow To some this. extent, they can break the functionality, but uh, yeah, you know, just work, find workarounds, you know, don't use, don't ever use the default settings. The default settings are never designed for your flourishing. <laughs> so Daniel's in the background who's virtually for this, our producer, and he's telling us time's up. I do need to say one thing, because you're going to love this, Andy. Somebody has put in the Q&A, not a question, but they just wanted to back you up on your, on your theory about the piano. They're a piano teacher, and they say that Andy's right. So, <laughs> Jason, Jason um, thanks a lot. This is actually just an intervention for Josh's family, y'all. Y'all are just along for this intervention, but it could make a big difference in a seven-year-old's life. So it was worth your being here. <laughs> so, um, so what we're going to do now, uh, we, we're going to, first of all, I want to encourage everybody to stay on for the next hour. It's going to be a lot of fun because we're going to put Andy on with Amy, his daughter, and we're going to find out what it was really like uh, growing up in the Crouch home. And he really... <laughs> stuck to all the things he says in the book and 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 then we're gonna have a panel from uh with representatives from the four sponsored churches for the night it's gonna be a fun time uh if you've got high school kids if you've got kids with phones or they're about to get phones and technology i encourage you to go uh let them stay up a little later if they have an early bedtime but and and get them on the call with you and uh and, and stay on. So we're going to take a 10 minute break, let Andy get a drink of water, get our act together behind the scenes and uh, either kind of stay on or jump back in in 10 minutes. And uh, we look forward to hopefully seeing most of you in the next hour. So thanks Andy. And we'll see you, see you in just a few minutes. Great. Welcome to our second session of tonight's event entitled thriving in a digital age. Uh, because the second session is particularly aimed at family life, my colleague Caleb Burr, Burr, who is the Clergy Associate for Family Ministry at Holy Trinity and is also a New City Fellow alum, is going to emcee this part of the evening. And so, Caleb, um, thanks, 
thanks for leading us in this second hour. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Well, to set a little bit of the landscape for you all who are just joining in for the second half or who have been a part of the first half. So one of the things that we realize uh, that three things aren't going to be changing anytime soon, parenting, technology, and then living with technology. And so we've come to the conclusion that it's really important for us uh, to be thoughtful, to think through these things. And so we have uh, decided to come up with a time that we can have a very uh, practical conversation to figure out how as a family, we can thrive together with technology. Uh, as Josh said, I'm the family pastor at Holy Trinity Anglican Church. And so this gives me uh, the ability to talk with both adults and students. And uh, throughout my conversations, uh, both groups have spoken to me about how they feel this gravitational pull of technology. They see the benefits of it, but they also feel some of the uh, negative side effects of it. So uh, what we're going to do for the rest of our time this uh, evening is we're going to have a 20-minute conversation with Andy and Amy where uh, we just kind of unpack some of the ways that they see technology and uh, especially the way that Amy experienced technology when she was growing up in the Crouch family. And then uh, we're also going to have uh, bring some panelists on from three, uh, the four partner churches uh, that are part of New City Fellows. So uh, without further ado, uh, I'd love to invite Andy and Amy back on for uh, this next part. Hello, Gail. Hello. And hello to my daughter. Hi, Dad. She's <laughs> uh, off in college, so this is a good, uh, a good excuse to see her. Yes. This is great. Well, uh, let me first by introducing you, Andy. You are a very comp accomplished individual, so I'm simply going to look at the screen and read your bio. So <laughs> Make it quick. Short, short version. Uh, I have a one-year-old and my ability to memorize things has gone drastically down since uh, having her. So uh, Andy is partner for Theology and Culture at Practice, Praxis, which is an organization that works as a creative engine, engine for redemptive entrepreneurship. Uh, he, his most recent book, My TechWise Life with his daughter, Amy, uh, is one of the books. And then he also wrote uh, The TechWise Family, Strong and Weak. Uh, playing God, Redeeming the Gifts of Power, and Culture Making, Recovering Our Creative Calling. For more than 10 years, he was editor and producer at Christianity Today, including serving as executive director uh, from 2012 to 2016. He served the John uh, Templeton Foundation in 2017 as senior strategist for communication. Uh, his work has been featured in New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Time. Uh, and so we are just so grateful for you to be on here, Andy, to offer uh, your insights and wisdom. Also want to introduce Amy, his daughter. Uh, she is the co-author of My TechWise Life, and she is a junior at Cornell University studying linguistics, English, and then anything else she can fit into her schedule when she's not writing books. She loves to cook, climb mountains, and chat about books. So uh, you guys, as we transition into this next section, uh, I kind of want to uh, first address you, Andy, and ask the question, uh, orbiting around this idea that a lot of people expect your main message to be about screen time limits for kids, but I know you think about technology in a different way. Can you, can you explain a little bit, flesh out uh, the way you think about technology? Yeah, I think this is uh, naturally what folks expect when they hear that someone has written a book about family and technology, but I actually am really not focused primarily on any of those three kind of keywords, screens, limits, and kids. Um, and and uh, let me say what I do think are the, the deeper issues in our families and our homes. 
Um, screens are a big deal, and we will talk about them now, of course, and they, they do matter how we, the choices we make. But I think there's something deeper behind uh, the screens, and that's everything that I would call devices. All these things that we invited into our homes that make our lives easier in a lot of ways, but also give us less and less to do together as human beings and as a family. Um, so when we stopped gathering around the fireplace or what uh, back in the day people called the hearth, the place, the place where you cooked, the place where you got warm, the place where you told stories, the place where you, that you had to cut the wood for, chop the wood for, uh, stack the wood for, dry the wood, bring the wood in, keep the fire going, cover the fire, uh, that and, and that was at the center of the home. Think of what we gave up when that got outsourced to the furnace. Um, our family has not spent any meaningful time around the furnace in our basement. <laughs> we don't do anything for the furnace. And this shift from um, a world that had all kinds of engaging, often difficult work that the family had to do together at its center that required skill, a certain level of expertise and craft, and replacing that with devices is an even bigger deal than screens, I would say. So we could talk more about that if you want. Then there's limits. Like, and the reason I don't like talking about limits is I feel like parenting by limits is the worst part of parenting. <laughs> it's my least favorite part of parenting. I remember when I was growing up hearing my parents um, and other parents kind of joke about taking your kids to the grocery store and the, the checkout line would be lined with candy and how hard it was to get your kid through the checkout line with all this candy. It's still true to some extent. Um, and those moments are like the least fun moments when you're trying to keep the three-year-old's little hands off the candy bars. And of course, now we're all living all the time with candy bars, like digital candy bars, <laughs> candy crush bars uh, uh, in our hands all the time. And I never wanted to be for my kids or be remembered by my kids as someone who, who was mostly about the limits. So instead, although of course we all need limits in a healthy life, I want to think more about flourishing, which is what do we really want? Not what do we not want or what can we not have, or you can't have that now, but what is it that we all want uh, to be really fully human together and, and that maybe we can only get uh, fully uh, in, in, some, in some cases in, our, in these precious years when we're a family together. Um, and then the last thing I would say is uh, not about the kids, not just about the kids. It's about all of us. Uh, as far as limits, the parents need limits just as much as the kids do. Uh, we did some research for TechWise Family and tech, My TechWise Life. Um, one of the most interesting things is when you ask uh, kids what they would like to change in their relationship with their parents, the, the single most common answer is, I wish my parents would spend less time on their phones and more time talking to me. So even if you want to talk about screen time limits, it's actually for the whole family and the best choices we make, we make all together and the rules apply to everyone the same way rather than a set of rules that the parents impose on the kids. So uh, devices flourishing and what we all do together uh, rather than screen time limits for kids. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, that's great. Now, <laughs> I'm curious, Amy, that's definitely not what I hear from a lot of other parents in some senses. So what was that like uh, living with your dad when you through the conversation. What was it like uh, living under this kind of uh, worldview when it comes to technology? Um, yeah, what was it like uh, to have such a different childhood from your friends and peers? 
Yeah. Well, this is always what people want to know, right? And <laughs> um, totally understandably, I, I get this question a lot. And you know, it's tr- it's tricky because there actually isn't an interesting answer. <laughs> I've thought about how to reply to this question so many times because it is a good question. And the truth is very boring, which is it honestly wasn't the biggest deal. Um but maybe it would be interesting to go into why that is. Hopefully I can unbore you. Um, I would say that, so there were legitimate differences, right? We didn't have a TV until I think I was like 12. And I don't even remember when we got it because we still didn't watch very much TV afterwards. Um, we never had video games in the house. Uh, we, it, My brother and I didn't get smartphones until high school. And these were legitimate differences. And I certainly was aware of them. And to this day, uh, even like for some reason, college students love to talk about SpongeBob, Uh, not something I would have expected, but it is true. A lot of college students will talk about SpongeBob and I'll just be like, huh, did not watch that. (laughs) Um, And so there were legitimate differences, but I would say that the reason it didn't sort of Mm, didn't feel like the biggest deal is because fundamentally all good friendship and all good community is built on bridging differences. It's about um, kind of stepping, stepping beyond what you can't talk about to the things that you can talk about, to the things that you share. And I was able to find such wonderful relationships with people who, you know, were very different than me, um, who, who did not, who absolutely were watching TV every day after school. Um, and that's just because that's what good friendship is. And so there were ways in which um, I, I felt, you know, different or occasionally felt like left out. But I would say technology or our family's use of technology was not the problem there. It was just a symptom of, of something that was more underlying. Um, and so I would say that Honestly, um, like my childhood was there was joy when I was part of good functioning communities and there was frustration when I was maybe not part of those communities and technology was never the real reason for that. It's, it's interesting because I think people had this idea of kids where it's like there are these maniacs who just have to have technology <laughs> If you give them a phone, they're going to be on it for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But I know in some of the research that you've done for your book, um, you've seen a different picture that uh, young people even have their own concerns about technology. As I mentioned, they too are feeling this gravitational pull, and it's not always for the good, it's for the bad. Can you speak to a little bit of uh, some of your findings, um, especially to speak mm-hmm. to people uh, here who are on tonight? Yes, yes, I love this data. So um, for for the book, My TechWise Life, along with dad's book, The TechWise Family, we partnered with Barna to survey teenagers, uh, or actually I think kids 13 to 21 across the country about, you know, what's your relationship with technology like? And one of the coolest pieces of data, I think, um, is asking about uh, tech limits, which my dad just said, we don't talk about tech limits, but we'll talk about We're them only now. Talk. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we first, we just asked everyone, um, do your parents or guardians set any kind of uh, limits, you know, rules around technology? 
And so what we found of that is about one in three teenagers says yes, and about two in three says no. So it's sort of a a large minority uh, of families that set these kinds of regulations. But when we ask the kids whose parents didn't set limits, we say, do you set any limits for yourself? Over half of them say, yes, I do. Over half of teenagers with no kind of family regulations around technology are actually saying, you know what, I need some rules and they're setting them for themselves. And I think that is so amazing. And it also really rings true for me, like just as I'm a 20 year old now, so I'm not a teenager, but um, like as a quote unquote young person, um, we have really complicated relationships with technology. We recognize its power and the wonderful things it can do. And yet pretty much everyone my age would agree, like there are things that we're dissatisfied with. We want something to change. And so I think the data very clearly shows that um, teenagers want something different and are not satisfied with uh, the current relationship that Mm. is the status quo with tech. Mm. Can I add a a bit to that, Caleb? There's a phrase that, (laughs) (laughs) well, there's a phrase that you sometimes hear. It's not the most common, but it does come up quite often where people say, well, you know, kids these days are digital natives. They they just Mm. like, they they were, they're fluent in this, the way a native speaker of a language would be. And of course, I recognize that, um, that there is a kind of ease and familiarity with, with our current devices that uh, the kids have. And there's a lot of different reasons for that. Um, but I, I always want to say, no one is born looking for a screen. Every single human being is born looking for a face, looking for mm-hmm. another person. Our native, our native need, as it were, as human beings is relationship with other human beings. And one of the really tough things is that this is the first generation who are going through childhood and adolescence now who often, when they looked for the face, the face was diverted. The face mm-hmm. was not attending to them because we find these, all of us, it's not, it's really not about kids. All of us find these glowing rectangles very, very captivating. Even when we want to be paying attention to our spouse or a child or even an infant, that glowing thing grabs us. And so kids have grown up competing with this. Kids discovered early on the satisfactions uh, and in some ways the, the lower risk nature of engaging with a screen than a face. But no one started out wanting this. And as we come of age, we all realize that I don't, I don't want to live my life through a screen. And I think that's as true of a 15-year-old today as it's th- true of a 55-year-old. Mm-hmm. So, Andy and, and Amy, I, I know in the beginning you said this isn't about screens, but what about screens? <laughs> I do want to get into a little bit of some of this practical thing of uh, talking through how much we need them right now for mm-hmm. home and school and church with our current pandemic going on. Practically right now, what does it look like to lead a TechWise life based on our current kind of moment? Mm-hmm. Do you want me, well, maybe I'll say something, Amy, and then you <laughs> Sure, yeah. Uh, so, I said this in the first hour, some people will have heard it, but um, I think of our current dependence on screens much of, in much the same way that I think of the dependence of Londoners on underground bomb shelters during the Blitz in World War II, which is thank goodness they're there. 
Thank goodness we can go there. Thank goodness we can be together there because there was great togetherness in the bomb shelters. Thank goodness that we can actually have meaningful relationships and encounters there in a time when a lot is disrupted. And thank goodness we will not have to stay there. <laughs> so in, in this wartime footing that we've been on for the last year and we'll be on for a little bit longer, um, you know, obviously we've had to bring screens into all kinds of domains where we, we, we know they're not best. We can feel they're not best. I think actually the people, there's two groups of people are most dissatisfied with virtual church. Number one is pastors. <laughs> I haven't met a single pastor who's like, oh, it's so much better now. Uh, but the other group is and children and teenagers. Yeah, amen. <laughs> right? the, the other group is children and teenagers who are, I, I, I have probably a dozen different families that we're friends with whose children just refuse to do the virtual church thing. They, I have a friend who's, who leads a major, uh, wonderful nat national ministry. And then he's also a really good Christian dad. And his kids came to him and they said, dad, didn't you teach us that church is like where the body of Christ gathers and where we're together to be in fellowship with one another? He's like, yes. He said, well, that's not what we're doing. So why are we calling it church? Like they totally see through it. They see it's so inadequate. So We've all had to live through wartime here. Uh, and we'll just be so glad because we're not made to, for glowing rectangles any more than we're made for bomb shelters. Um, now, I know, Amy, you've, you have thought in some really creative ways, even with all the virtual schooling you've had to do and stuff, you've mm -hmm. actually maintained a lot of the same disciplines with screens that we had yeah. before, just in more intense ways. So I don't know, you wanna share some of the practical like, yes. choices you make? I would love to. And I, I have to say like, we should be lamenting this. Um, I think yeah. in some ways a year into the pandemic, it can feel sort of like old news, old grief, but it's not every day. It is okay for us to get up and say, I hate that I have to go to Zoom school. <laughs> um, I And so I think we can be lamenting, but I also think there are very practical ways that we can seek a more kind of embodied three-dimensional existence that satisfies us, you know, heart, soul, mind, and strength, as dad would say. Um, so first of all, I think there are a lot of great ways that we can bring the physical world to the virtual world or maybe vice versa. Um, dad mentioned in the last hour, uh, his, his habit of taking calls while going on walks. And I actually also do this. Um, I, I'll, yeah, when I want to call a friend instead of sitting, uh, you know, somewhere in my bedroom and maybe getting distracted, I'll just go out on a walk while speaking to them. Um, similarly tomorrow, actually, I'm participating in a virtual baking session, um, getting together with other people over zoom and baking holla. That's actually, awesome. it's going to be super fun. Um, sure. and so I'm going to get to connect with people who live very far away from me, but I will also be engaging with my hands. Um, eventually, hopefully something delicious with my taste buds. Um, and, and so I'm bringing my physical self, uh, to this mediated experience. Um, I would also say uh, right now, a lot of work has to be online. And I think that that means we should try to shift our leisure time as offline as possible. Mm -hmm. Maybe two years ago, last year, whatever, maybe it made sense to kind of after a long day at work, flop on the couch and watch Netflix. I don't think that's wise now. I don't think that after eight hours of screens, it makes sense to stare at screens some more. 
Um, so I would really, really encourage everyone to be cultivate, cultivating uh, embodied habits, um, just whether it's going for a walk after your long day of staring at a screen, um, baking. I think there's a reason for the like bread baking craze that happened at the beginning, um, you know, sports, uh, books, anything that just gets you outside of this, this little glowing rectangle, I think is really valuable. I think that's a really thoughtful, practical advice of flexing some of the muscles during rest that you aren't using throughout the measure yes. of the day. Exactly. Oh no, I have one more. Yeah, yeah. I am so sorry to the, uh, the time, but um, I, I, I think I would just finally add, um, I think we need to be taking breaks from tech and they're even more essential now. So um, every Sunday, my family has always taken a Sabbath day and as again, dad mentioned this, um, it's also a day, uh, kind of stepping away from screens. And I think these kinds of days are more essential now than ever, um, just to spend a day, not hunched over in front of a screen, um, really transforms you in really deep ways. That's great. Well, I want to ask one more question before we transition to our panelists. Uh, what advice would you give uh, for a family who's listening, maybe for the first time, uh, hearing about all of this kind of new way of thinking about technology, who wants to make a change, but mm-hmm. may have been spending years and years and have all these kind of built up calluses uh, without any regulation on technology? Is willpower enough? Uh, and what are a few <laughs> practical steps mm-hmm. that uh, people can take to maybe push the ball forward or uh, become just a little healthier when it comes to technology. So I have two, two principles here. Um, The first is start by adding, not subtracting. So I, I literally just mentioned our Sabbath day, right? The day where we take time away. And I think those limits taking literally, you know, days without tech are important. But I think when you're starting out uh, trying to kind of fix your relationship with technology or move towards a a better set of habits, I think first it makes sense to add things. Um, Maybe it could be adding mm, time together playing a board game, Um, time together spent over dinner, um, maybe light some candles. That's always fun. Um, Sports time together, you know, like playing Frisbee in the backyard Um, even reading out loud together. I think starting out by just adding physically embodied habits um, is going to feel a lot more kind of fun and exciting than just saying, we're going to throw away our TV, you know, throw throw it out the window. Um, And so I think that makes a big difference. And then the second thing I would say is find the why, Um, not the letter Y, the word, the question, why? (laughs) Why are we doing this? Um, why is it that we're seeking to, um, to, to make such big changes? What are, what's the pain point that we've been feeling, the reason that we want to change our relationship with technology? Um, and how can that central desire motivate all the decisions we make around technology? Hmm. That's, That's great. Really good. Yeah. <laughs> I would just add, those are, those are better than my answers, but uh, I, would, I would add, do it together. Uh, and actually decide together as much as possible. So it might be that the parents are the ones who feel like, oh man, it's gotten out of control. We need to do something. But it's really important, assuming your kids are, are older than just the very earliest years, to involve 
involve everybody in the family rather than imposing it. Uh, that It'll go better, I promise, if it's based on what do we all want for our family life. And I think that's where adding sometimes goes better than subtracting. Um, and then if you subtract, and I think probably a lot of us do need to do some subtracting, uh, for example, in our leisure time, realizing, oh my gosh, should I really, should we really add Netflix at the end of a day on screens? Just expect it to be hard <laughs> for the first third of the time. I, there's like an iron law of withdrawal from almost anything we depend on to give us a sense of well-being in the world that that if you give it up for a day, if you give it up for an hour, or if you give it up for a week or a month, it'll have the same pattern. The first third of the time, so the first 20 minutes of the hour, the first two days of the week, the first two weeks of the month, you'll feel awful. You'll hate each other. You'll get into fights. You Everyone will wish they hadn't done this. Then there's, there's this like middle third of calm, of readjustment, and you've stopped fighting it. It's there's just it's blank. And then the last third is discovering new ways to be alive in the world that that thing was covering up. This happens when you give up coffee. It happens when you <laughs> fast from food. And it will happen if you and your family decide to do something different with technology. The first third will be super, super hard. But there is real joy on the other side of it. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I most of the families I know that have lived through that and have made it through the first two thirds, at the end, the kids are the first to say, we never want to go back to the way we mm -hmm. used to do things. Yeah. It's great. Uh, you mentioned in the first session, we all want superpowers. I do wish I had the superpower to jump to that final stage. Yes. <laughs> uh... All the toughness. But um, yeah, it takes work, it takes discipline, and it takes courage. Mm -hmm. make these totally. decisions well thank you guys for uh just giving us a framework to think about technology in some different ways and amy for sharing a little bit about your experience growing up i want to invite the other panelists to come on so these panelists are representing uh, uh, uh partner churches of the center for public christianity and uh, when I introduce you, uh, panelists, if you could just wave. So I want to first introduce uh, Samantha Kilpatrick. She uh, is from Providence Church and is an attorney in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. And her practice focuses uh, primarily on uh, sexual abuse, child protection policies, and criminal law. She's a former prosecutor, so watch out. Uh, she's been married to her husband, Tom, for almost 25 years, and they have two, two children, uh, a son in high school, so she's in the thick of it right now, and then a daughter in college as well. She speaks frequently on the topic of parenting and technology because she uh, wants to make sure that children are protected from harm uh, and empower parents uh, as they go on this journey. Next, I want to introduce uh, Jordan Penley. Jordan is a, a downtown pastor at Vintage Church and is working on his master's at Grimke Seminary. He's married to Jessica and uh, as a local pastor down at a uh, downtown church, he sees uh, the real need for these conversations on technology because uh, he's in the thick of it with people and he sees the helpful and unhelpful influences uh, on the community of Vintage. And so this is something that he cares about because uh, this is deeply personal to his people. And then I'll introduce finally uh, Stephanie Massey. Uh, she's the children's director at uh, Christ the King. She lives in Raleigh and is married and has four kids, two now in the workforce and two in college. And interestingly enough, one of her sons worked for uh, Epic, which is the creator of Fortnite. And so she was in that, uh, math, her son was in that massive craze uh, of Fortnite. And so uh, having raised four kids, uh, she sees the need for this just based on her personal experiences to uh, encourage families to make wiser choices and better boundaries. 
Uh, and just a little uh, personal about me, I have a uh, one-year-old daughter now, uh, sweet Hallie, and uh, I just am reflecting on the fact that out of all the toys that she's always grabbing for, it's always for my phone and it's always for my computer. And so as a dad, I'm like, oh no, am I ruining my daughter already? <laughs> so I'm eager to uh, hear uh, what you have to say uh, with some of these questions just so that we can better uh, equip parents, uh, panelists included to uh, be more mindful of technology. So as we transition, Stephanie, I'd love to uh, have you kick us off with the first question. Absolutely, I'm privileged. Um, this is for Amy. Amy, how do you see the habits that you've cultivated affecting your college experience in mm -hmm. comparison to other college students that may not have developed these tech-wise habits, in particular in the learning environment? Yeah. Interesting. Um, ooh, I, yes, I like this question. Um, hmm, there are kind of a lot of different directions I could go with this, but um, I think I'll say two things. Um, no, three things. All right. Um, so the first thing is just the way it's impacted the way that I see community. Um, I think one of the things I'm really grateful to my family for is how much we emphasized that um, loving people not only is hard, we kind of all know that, but it also takes patience. Um, even my most beloved friends, um, like pay, I being a friend to them means sitting with them and just listening to like the small details of their days. Um, spending the small things like lunch together, studying in silence together. Um, being a person who loves other people well um, is not about looking for excitement all the time or always expecting that they're going to sort of entertain you because that's not what people are for. Mm. And so I think our family really emphasized like um, being a, somebody who's a good member of a community um, means being patient, means taking the time to listen to people and learn their stories. And I think that our devices make it seem as though relationship can be re reduced to a few clicks or to, you know, double tapping on a collection of pixels. And so uh, I'm really, really grateful for that. Um, then I would say that patience, this is turning to be, out to be a theme, uh, patience influences the way that I work. It influences who I am as a student. Um, I think I've really learned, I've been able to cultivate the skill that it takes to sit in a lecture hall, um, taking notes without being tempted to pull out my phone or to be, you know, pulling up another tab on my computer, although I prefer not to have my computer with me in a lecture hall. Um, and so I think that learning patience and learning the rejection of technologies kind of speedy, always on notifications all the time, um, learning to resist that has really made me a better student. And finally, I would say our practice of Sabbath has, I usually say it's the thing that has kept me sane as a college student mm. one day a week where I am not the center of the universe one day a week <laughs> where I get to just sit back and sort of let the truth sink into me that I am not in charge of my destiny. Thank goodness. Um, it, every single Sunday, um, I, I just find this weight lifting off my shoulders and it has kept me 
sort of joyful and sane through college in a way that I'm really grateful for. Mm, thank you. Not perhaps the most common way people would describe their college experience <laughs> in, in Amy's world. So, yeah. Uh, Amy, uh, Jordan Pimley again from Venice Church in Raleigh. Uh, I was curious, your dad said um, the, the importance of doing it together or uh, do it together. And I was curious if you'd welcomed friends or maybe roommates into your view and practice mm -hmm. of technology and maybe what that looks like to bring yeah into your use when maybe they don't have the same boundaries or mm -hmm. yeah hmm I love this question and I think that what makes it a little challenging is I think that for people my age and maybe and also I think especially for like parents and people older is technology use is so tied up with guilt even mm -hmm. if my friends or my peers are not sort of interested in like limits on their use of technology there are these feelings of guilt like oh I spent hours binging Netflix um, I've been scrolling through social media instead of doing my homework and it's all so tied up with guilt and I never as or rarely at least as a friend think that it's helpful or loving to just sort of make someone feel guiltier uh, without also offering a way out and so um, I have I've felt that it requires a lot of wisdom in order to kind of bring someone into a rhythm of using uh, technology in whatever, a tech-wise way. Um, but I think the ways in which it's worked well is when I um, approach something really collaboratively. So for instance, often when I'm at lunch with a friend, I'll say, hey, why don't we both um, set aside our phones? Like I usually just like, dig, you know, leave it deep down in my backpack. Why don't we both set aside our phones or our computers? Um, similarly, when I'm studying with someone else, I do often ask for accountability. I say, hey, <laughs> if you notice me like opening up, I don't know, some tab to browse like a recipe blog, um, let me know. And so I, I think that um, I, I've been able to sort of face it as a common problem and say to my, like my friends and my peers, like, let's figure out a way to get through this together. Um, but I would be very hesitant of sort of going up to someone and saying, Hey, I don't like the way you use technology. You know, uh, this is something that comes up when I talk to parents of younger kids. Uh, sometimes, people sometimes ask how we handled our kids um, going other to other friends' houses, other families that had mm. different approaches than us. And I don't know, Amen, you tell me if this doesn't seem right, but we, we really did not want our kids to be in the awkward position of enforcing some set of boundaries mm, that mm -hmm. we kept. So when our son would go to friends and they had video games, um, even though we didn't have that as part of our, his experience in our home, we felt like if we created the right environment, um, where most of the time our kids were experiencing what we felt like was a flourishing environment, we didn't, we were not interested in them kind of going out and imposing any rules else, <laughs> elsewhere other than relating to things that might actually be harmful. Um, you know, so our son played video games at friends' houses because that's what a lot of boys do. Um, and we just weren't that worried about that. I think that that gave them the freedom mm -hmm. to not, not have to uh, complicate relationships in that way. Yeah. 
Well, Andy, I, I have a question for you. So as I mentioned, I have a one-year-old. And so uh, Hallie doesn't have her own personal device yet. And yeah, I definitely recommend waiting till three uh, for sure. <laughs> She does have a great uh, sound telephone that she loves. So uh, one of the questions that I think about as a parent is like, what, what can I be doing now to begin mm. forming these habits mm. so that Hallie kind of comes into an ecosystem that's really healthy and tech wise? Um, I, I think of oftentimes this maxim of like, you can't give what you don't have. And so yeah. is there things that I should be thinking about internally or for our family? You just speak to some of those families who have young kids who may not have an iPhone yet or a computer or a tablet. So the beautiful thing about this stage um, is what, what your child, uh, what any healthy child most wants is you, uh, your attention, your presence, your involvement. They're also testing. Uh, how do I move away and know that dad's still there? My mom's still there, but, but they want you there. This, this changes in adolescence. Uh, the, the task of adolescence is, is different. And I remember a very poignant thing I heard uh, when my own kids entered that stage. Um, my friend said, an older friend said, you know, you've, you've lived with them running to you and now you'll have to more and more go to them uh, to initiate relationship. So the most important thing at this stage that you'll be in for roughly the next 10 years with your daughter is, is uh, eliminating the things in your life that, uh, that when you're with her, when you're um, obviously you, you have to work and, and your job, is, I'm sure is kind of permeates your home in, in a way that not all jobs do. And you have to be available to some extent for that. But, uh, but finding ways to really be fully there uh, in your home, not half there. Um, mm. so for me, this meant, well, I mean, to be totally honest, I wrote the TechWise family book when Amy was 16 years old. Mm -hmm. And honestly, it was partly built on things that, that my wife saw me doing that weren't healthy, that I had to change in the course of our kids' childhood. So our, our children did not grow up in a hundred percent TechWise environment. We wrote about the things we learned to do along the way. Um, but increasingly, I, I put my phone away when I, when I wasn't doing work. I kept my laptop downstairs in, in a home office we have. I, I didn't bring it up. I brought it up less and less the more I became aware of this. <laughs> um, so I would, encourage, um, I would encourage some really clear boundaries for, for the parents, because ultimately our kids are going to model their lives on the best of what they see in us. Uh, and so much more than boundaries for kids, I actually think parents need to be thinking about how can I be available to my colleagues at work and to, to other relatives who need to be in touch, but not let that interpose itself, especially in those precious years when they actually want your presence, your face, your voice right there with them. It's helpful, but very challenging. <laughs> Thank you. It's super, it's super yeah. challenging. These things sure, are designed. In 10 years. <laughs> oh, sorry. I, uh, I, I said, check back with me in 10 years. <laughs> no, I did that. Listen, this is so hard. And this is why I really think above all this is about wisdom and courage for us as parents. Also in terms of when we give our kids devices, most parents don't give their kids devices to solve a problem the child has. We give them a device to solve a problem we have. And it's harder to solve the problem without the device for us, not for them. And, and so parenting is like a lifelong process of humbling yourself and doing, doing things that are harder and harder and 
it's it's not easy and messing mm-hmm. up tons and you'll find there's amazing uh, amounts of grace on the other side. Thank you. Andy and Amy, um, my question somewhat revolves around peer pressure, peer mm-hmm. pressure on the level of teens and on the level of the parents. Um, so often um, right now, teens are finding themselves where their families have implemented some limits on um, social media and that type of thing, but they find that their friends are only using those platforms to communicate. And so there yeah. is kind of that disconnect from, from their community. Um, how might you um, help parents navigate this in order to be sensitive to what their kids are feeling, but then also to be able to stand firm in what they are believing and, and what they've established for their family? Wow, that's so good. I'll, I'll maybe pick up, pick it up first and then Amy, you may have some really important thoughts. Um, I think it's really important for parents to be empathetic, especially once kids hit adolescence, that this is, uh, these, this is not just fun and games. This is relationship for most kids. And I don't think that's best, but it is the way that friendships happen, that communication happens. My main thought is, uh, start hacking. So hacking just means using a, a device or technology in ways that it wasn't necessarily designed to be used. And I think there's some really good hacks, the most obvious of which is if, if text messaging or a given chat platform or whatever is the way kids stay in touch and find out what's happening, even just in their friend group, um, it doesn't have to, have to happen for your child on their own individual device in their bedroom. <laughs> it can happen on a shared family device. You can actually be with them as they catch up after school. It depends on the age, but uh, the younger the child, the more I think parents should be, should be using any technology with their kids rather than handing it to the kid and letting them go in a corner. Um, and so uh, there, I have friends whose, whose kids do have access to text messaging, you know, even in the single digits, late single digits, but with mom and dad there. And um, that gets all the communication value and none of the really complex and uh, sometimes, frankly, very uh, damaging, other times just very distracting and unhealthy uh, kind of adolescent things that go on over those media. So um, you need to find workarounds for the probably the way other kids are using it is not the best way for your kid. Uh, but it is really fair, uh, I think, to recognize how much interaction happens and how much people find out on these networks just about what their friends are thinking and doing. So help them find a way to do that without it becoming the whole stack, the device, the unlocked device with full internet access 24-7. You don't have to have that to keep up on text messages with what's happening tomorrow with the soccer team. Yeah, I might just add to that. Um one discipline which our family did not sort of have was not necessarily intentional about, although it did come up, um, is something that I have heard from families as I've been doing more with this um, tech-wise stuff and speaking more to parents who are prioritizing this, um, which is talk every day about what is going on on social media in the group chats that your child will be in. Group chats are very important. Um, Talk (laughs) like literally every day at the dinner table, just check in on what has been happening in the virtual world because the virtual world is the real world for kids. Um, 
And so this is something that kind of happened organically in some ways in our family that often came up, but I would really encourage parents to make this an intentional, um, real, real, almost discipline and practice every day. Mm. I think that's really good. Thank really you. Good. Bring the virtual world into the real world in a way, or, or mm, just recognize yeah. it's all part of your child's life and parents should be in their child's lives and, and kids want their parents in their, in their yes. lives more than they, more than they'll tell you even <laughs> into adolescence. They want you in their lives. Yeah. That actually leads me right into my next question, which is how can parents have a graceful response to their mm. child when they find out that the child has been using their technology mm. in dangerous or even illicit ways. I have a small story about that, um, which maybe can illustrate a couple things. Um, we didn't have video games, but uh, we felt like it was great for our kids, depending on interest. And our son was very interested to learn coding and 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 the kind of the under the hood uh, reality of computers. Uh, I think that's awesome. Once kids get into the double digits, I, I love for kids to learn algorithmic thinking, mathematical thinking, uh, even things like Minecraft are, are really great in many ways. Just not not as early because <laughs> there's a lot of other things to learn in the world. So our son had access to the family computer and uh, when he was 11 or 12 years old and he found his way <laughs> as kids do to an online video game. It was harmless, I should say. Uh, in, it wasn't illicit in the way that uh, you may be thinking of and that, that lots of parents do experience. Um, but it was, uh, it was a violation of the agreement of how he was going to use the computer. And I caught him uh, playing this, you know, silly, but, quite addictive game. And he was furious that I caught him, uh, very, very resistant to any intervention. And I said, Timothy, I, I'm, I want to sit here with you while you delete your account. And the, the rage on my son's face, I, I'll, I'll never fully forget this, I don't think, was, was quite something to behold, but I had the authority to make him do it. I did. And the transformation... <laughs> from rage to relief, the moment that I graciously firmly made him hit that key that deleted the whole thing was amazing. Cause on the other side of it, he knew he was in over his head in, in terms of compulsion, in terms of deception, in terms of not really doing what he had said he was going to do and wanted to do. And he was so grateful to be, to be led out of it, even, but even though he was protesting all the way now, as kids get older, as the compulsions involved get more complex, uh, that won't happen as, as almost instantaneously as it happened for my son uh, because he was quite young and it was a fairly simple matter. So I'm, I don't wanna make a false promise that you're gonna see this like overnight transition, but you serve your child by, by being clear on what the boundaries are, by not letting things shade past the boundaries. And then I think you asked a really important component, which is the gracious part. It's really helpful to be honest about your own failings. Maybe you haven't failed in the exact same way you've seen your child fail, but none of us, I don't think any of us are without compulsion when it comes to devices. Um, none of us are without significant failings of character in our lives. And for our kids to know that we've struggled with it, that we do currently struggle with it, for them to have heard us apologize for things, ask for their forgiveness for things, makes a big difference when it comes time to 
uh, enforce uh, things that are good for them. So those are at least some some thoughts. Uh, Amy and Andy, I, I'm curious what advice you would give to maybe someone who makes some changes after hearing both of you tonight and makes it maybe three, four, five, six weeks in a really healthy way, but then slips back into some, you know, uh, maybe unhealthy uses of technology. And what advice would you give them to recalibrate and recommit to a, being a TechWise family? Huh. Mm. How'd you take this one, Amy? Oh, yeah, <laughs> that is a good one. And it really is a question about all good habits, right? Um, there's that sort of excitement, almost, almost a high of, entering into something which really does feel like better We're doing and healthier. It. We're doing it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's like, look at me. I'm whatever, maybe quit Netflix or something. And it is, I think, fair to say that that, that kind of mm, exuberance maybe can wear off and will wear off. And anytime you give up anything, um, there's going to be a moment where the sort of fluffy pride, the kind of effervescent mm. pride of having given it up mm. will gently fade away. And you'll just be like, oh, actually, well, I kind, I of, miss kind of miss Netflix. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> On the same wavelength. Um, and so mm, I think there are a couple ways to approach this. Um, the first is to be looking for something beyond just that sort of glow at the beginning right let's t let's take the example of quitting netflix it's actually something i would really recommend i don't have any like personal streaming services um and i i don't watch tv on my own um let's say you quit netflix or streaming services um i, I i'm gonna say that you know a month or so in um you will definitely find yourself thinking, oh my goodness, I have this boring hour. I just want to sit on a couch and stare at something that will distract me. Um, and I think that what you need to be looking for is not mm, the same kind of reward that the thing you gave up had been giving you, not the same kind of easy, quick distraction that Netflix gave, but instead searching for something beyond a kind of contentment, the ability to be patient, um, the ability to um, kind of sit, sit with yourself and um, find find real relief rather than just distraction. And mm -hmm. so I think that a good mindset maybe to bring into any process of adding a tech-wise habit or taking away something that wasn't tech-wise um, is mm, looking for a goal which goes deeper and mm, is kind of fuller, if that makes sense, than whatever smaller reward the technology was giving you. I might add two quick things. One is, gosh, we all mess up. We all fall into habits we wish you didn't have. And you just pick yourself up and you say a, a quick, honest prayer of uh, repentance and turn around and get back, you know, in the right direction. And the other thing is nudges really help. So, mm. um, 
you know, my wife is really good about leaving fruit out on the counter. <laughs> and, uh, you know, some nights I actually go for the apple rather than the ice cream because the <laughs> apple's right there on the counter. So it's totally legitimate to put nudges in your life, both nudges away from the things that you really know you, you need less of and nudges toward the things that you need more of. And uh, we have a lot of nudges built into our home uh, to help us make good choices because uh, we're, we're just as susceptible as anybody to uh, mm -hmm. the, easy, the easy way out. Andy, um, I'm interested in, as an attorney, I advise a lot of you serving organizations like churches, um, schools, camps, and that type of thing. Are there any things um, that you wish every youth serving organization um, could do as far as policy, um, mm. as far as teens and technology, and then helping kind of walk alongside parents? What would you say to the church, to the camps, to the schools? Mm. Well, I don't know if what I'm going to say is what they would most want to hear, but if you are serious about serving youth and the context is not one of actually developing a real deep technical ability, that is coding, understanding the underpinning, that's a very good thing to do with devices. The number one thing I wish more organizations would do is take away the phones when the kids arrive and focus on the thing you are there to do. Whether it's a youth basketball league, do it without the phones. Whether it's a camp, do camp without the phones. Whether it's youth group, do youth group without the phones. Um, the, uh, the kids will protest and three weeks in, they will never wanna go back because they'll be having a kind of experience they can't get anywhere else. And I, I do not believe there's any good reason to involve glowing rectangles in most kinds of learning. I think they should be strictly ancillary. So I wish most schools would entirely eliminate glowing rectangles. The OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development has studied um, school systems uh, of equally developed, quote unquote, economically developed countries around the world and, we, and have found no effect of the introduction of computers into education. They just don't, they don't harm a whole lot, but they don't help. And there's a lot of ancillary harm that they bring along in terms of distraction and, and worse that kids get involved in right under their teacher's noses. So, so I don't know, Samantha, if they, I'm not sure that's what your, the organizations you work with want to hear because they'll also run into huge resistance from parents of various kinds. But the best thing we can do for kids is create a different kind of environment for them that gives them a break from the mediated world that they are living in and the text messaging world that they, they are dependent on to some extent. And, and why else are you organized? Why else are you raising money uh, than to provide a really different kind of experience? So that would be my somewhat barn burning mm -hmm. answer. <laughs> Thank you. I, I agree wholeheartedly. Thank you. Well. Well, uh, Andy and Amy, thank you so much for uh, being on here and giving your wise reflection on these questions. Is there anything that you want to say uh, before, as we bring to a close, any kind of last word, any advice, encouragement, charge to parents and students who are listening right now? I want to say um, one thing that a, another panelist raised in, in the chat to just uh, those of us who are panelists. She pointed out very accurately, just based on what I last said, there's a lot of folks who are totally dependent on virtual learning right now. And, and I really want to, I would not want you to leave having heard me say, you know, that there aren't, there are ways to learn virtually, but, uh, but I would say it's not the best and help your school district or the school that your children are part of to move as quickly as possible towards, um, towards re what's really 
comprehensively the best. And I, I don't think there's much evidence that screens are the best for most learners and most kids. That's not a very happy way to end. <laughs> Wait, no, I have a happy way to end. Okay. <laughs> All right, here we go. Um, yeah, I would say um, grace just floods our imperfect disciplines and practices Amen. in the That's most right. amazing way. Um, I mentioned Sabbath earlier, and even though it may not sound directly tied to technology, it is nonetheless the number one discipline, discipline gift um, that my parents gave me. And to this day in college, every single Sunday, I take the day off from work and also set aside screens. And here's the thing. Our family Sabbaths were so far from perfect. Um, there were days where we had, I don't know if I want to say fights, but like parents asked me like, Amy, have you gotten your work done in time for a Sabbath? And I would say no. And there, it would be a problem. Like that was breaking the terms of what we had chosen to do as a family. Um, there were times when we had to take like half the day as a Sabbath. There were all of these ways in which we were not taking a perfect, beautiful 24 hours a day away. And it still changed my life. And I would just say the, the practices that you bring into your family, um, they will take root in ways that you cannot imagine. And they do not have to be picture perfect in order to bring your kids just joy of a really deep and lasting kind. So I promise that even the smallest things will make a really big difference. Well, thank you, Andy and Amy. And on behalf of the panelists, we are so grateful. Thank you, panelists. What great yes. questions. And uh, I will turn it back over to Josh as he closes out the night. Caleb, thanks for leading. That that was a very engaging hour. Uh, I'm sitting here with my my daughter who doesn't want to be on screen. Uh, <laughs> watching totally it. Fine. And uh, thank you to Amy and Andy. One of one of the one of the great parts of watching that was just watching Andy Andy's face light up as Amy is talking so that was that was wonderful and thank you panelists for such a thoughtful uh discussion and questions just a, a few things to well a few things to wrap up one is these two books uh they're very uh I, for all reading abilities I, I recommend this for for high school students and and below um and then Andy's book, The TechWise Family, for, for basically everybody else. And so they're great books. Thank you guys for those resources. Uh, just a reminder, uh, wanted to bring to your attention again that we'll be having information session, sessions for New City Fellows on March 11th and 18th. And you can sign up for those at the Center for Public Christianity.org. Um, particularly, uh, we're looking for emerging leaders who are in their 20s, 30s, and 40s who want to seek the common good of Raleigh to go through our eight-month program. So check out the website, and we'd love to talk to you more about that. And then finally, on the behalf of, on behalf of the Center for Public Christianity and all four churches that were involved tonight, thank you for taking the time to join us, and I wish you a good rest of the night. God bless.